0: Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. It's been a little while. We will be in Isaiah 6 this morning. If you want to start turning there, we'll jump right in. And if you want to take into account a couple of words at the outset of the message today that I think will be good guide for today's and next week's messages are the words holy and humble. And we just sang about that and I would second Kim's appreciation for the worship team this morning, um, considering holy, holy, holy goes right along with the message this morning in, in regards to God, and then the humility of we, God's people, and we keep those ideas in our mind, I think it will be helpful. Isaiah 6, if you would stand, we will read verses 1 through 8 this morning of Isaiah chapter 6. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Father, we are so grateful to you this morning. And Father, we just think of the words of the song that we just sang Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Father, we're grateful of that. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to consider the attribute of your holiness, and Father, the need and the exaltation of the cross of Jesus Christ in light of your holiness and our brokenness. I pray that you would guide us today, give us wisdom. I pray that you would help us to take from here things from your word that would Change us, and not only change us, but change those around us, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I think it was about 10 years ago now, while we were on vacation, my family and I had the privilege of visiting St. Andrew's Chapel in Sanford, Florida, where R.C. Sproul is the pastor. And Dr. Sproul was a man I esteem very highly in the faith, and I've listened to Literally countless hours of his sermons and teachings, and have benefited from them greatly, even in regard to the message that I'm about to deliver today. But uh, after the service, we walked through the line leading out of the church where Dr. Sproul was sitting on a stool at the back, and we shook his hand and thanked him for his ministry. And I have to admit, I was somewhat struck by that feeling we humans get when we're in the presence of someone that we hold in high regard. I think you know what I mean. Uh, if the President of the United States suddenly came through the back door, despite your political leanings, a certain anxious feeling would come over you. You can see this taken to an idolatrous extreme when you think about videos of young people almost having a mental breakdown when they come close to the latest pop icon. And I'm not even going to try to venture to name a late, a current pop icon, I will only date myself. <laughs> But in my day, it would be like Michael Jackson or previous to that. You can think of Elvis. You see these videos of this near mental collapse when people get in the presence of these people that they hold in high regard. And whether it be the office they hold or the respect that we have for them, something in us responds to them. And Isaiah most likely had a similar feeling towards King Uzziah. But as we will see, what Isaiah goes on to see far transcends a normal human experience. And as we consider the passage, let's first give a brief historical rundown and an introduction to Isaiah and the biblical landscape during this period of Isaiah 6. So Isaiah, who some would regard as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the son of Amoz, prophesied during the reigns of four different kings of Judah. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And remember, this was during the time of the divided kingdoms. So we had the united kingdom under David. And then when Solomon came to reign, it was still united but starting to fracture. And then at the point when Solomon went away, and his sons were to take over the the kingdoms. They split and divided into two. So this was during the time that the kingdom was divided. You had Israel, or if you're reading in the New Testament, will be regarded as Samaria. When you see Samaria mentioned in the New Testament, they're talking about the northern part of the kingdom, which was Israel. That was to the north, and then you had Judah to the south. So we have the divided kingdoms. Isaiah is in Judah, and we're talking about King Uzziah. So Isaiah's name, interestingly enough, means salvation of Jehovah, which is similar etymologically to the names Joshua or Jesus. So it's they're similar etymologically. And I say it's interesting because Isaiah has so many prophecies relating specifically to the coming Messiah who would show up some 700 years later, that being Jesus Christ. You'll recognize some of these verses if you go on to read through the book of Isaiah. Does this sound familiar? The virgin shall be with child, and his name will be Emmanuel. You might also recognize this. He was wounded for our transgressions. That's Isaiah. Those are all recognizable messianic prophecies of Isaiah. And what we are about to look at is the event of God's calling of Isaiah to be a prophet to his people. That's where we're at in Isaiah 6. Isaiah is relating his calling as a prophet. So verse 1. We're not going to get maybe through verse 3 or 4 today. But verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw this Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's verse 1. So Isaiah gives us a time frame for his vision. He states that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Now Uzziah was the 10th king of Judah. He was also known as Amaziah in Scripture. He came to the throne at the age of 16 years old, and he reigned roughly 52 years as the king. Biblical historians date his death at approximately 733 to 740, somewhere in that time frame. And Uzziah, in many respects, reigned with success and dignity and even brought about some spiritual revival, although we learn that later in life, pride became his undoing and he died a leper. But nevertheless, Uzziah was the only king Isaiah had known in his life to that point. And we must understand this in the context of the passage. It's the only king Isaiah has known, is Uzziah, his whole life. Then there was always a bit of anxiety when a king died, angst surrounding the transfer of power. We kind of understand that in this day. I'm too young to remember, but think of the anxiety surrounding the premature death of John F. Kennedy, or from history, the death of Abraham Lincoln. The anxiety that surrounded the nation whenever the president is assassinated. What's going to happen? Are we going to lose the, the country? What's going to become of the kingdom? There's a transfer of power and there's a, a nervousness coming about. And we, if we think in our own respect, Kennedy and, and Lincoln had just served. Kennedy hadn't even served four years. Uzziah had reigned for over 50 years And as this young prophet is experiencing some anxiety, no doubt thinking of the Assyrian threat that was mounting against his country and who would come to power and who would lead the nation and bring about spiritual renewal, all of a sudden, as we see from the text, God steps in. And Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And I want you to get the contrast here. It's as if God is saying to Isaiah, fear not, though King Uzziah be dead, Isaiah, your God lives. It's what God is saying to Isaiah. Do I even have to draw out the comparison with our own day? Our political landscape and those of other countries, not just ours, the lust for power, corruption, and yet so many are guilty of looking to particular parties to bring about peace and order. And just another side, we should absolutely participate in the political process. That's not what I'm saying. But if we are focusing our hope in a particular party system to bring about peace, we are focusing our attention in the wrong place. Now, I want you to notice something in your Bibles. And it's a handy tool for understanding just who the Lord is. So look, take a look at your Bibles, if you will. And you'll notice that the word Lord in verse 1, is spelled with a capital L and then lowercase letters. Do you see that? But if you skip ahead to verse 3, you'll see the word Lord spelled in all capitals. Why, we might ask. What's the difference? Well, the translators are giving us some insight into the Hebrew. When you see Lord, that's capital L with lowercase letters, the word being translated is Adonai. Which means the sovereign one. Whereas the Lord, when it's all capitalized, is the name Yahweh or Jehovah, the name that God revealed to Moses in the wilderness when he said, I am that I am. If you're into big fancy words, that's called the tetragrammaton. It's four syllables. They translate it YHWH, all syllables. And just as of note, whenever scribes were copying and making copies of the Old Testament text, when they came to the Tetragrammaton, or the word for God, they would stop where they were at, they would go take a ceremonial bath, get a new pen, write the word, and change back. That's the esteem in which they held the word. And while both names are used for God, one can appreciate a distinction I want you to turn with me to the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament verse that we will find in the New Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1. This is a psalm of David. It is a messianic psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1. And this is David writing. He says this, and and look again at the spellings of the words, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the most important verse of scripture where we have Yahweh ascribing to another the title of Adonai. The Lord says to my Lord is what the word says. So we have Yahweh ascribing to another the title of Adonai. This tells us this this can be no other than the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Isaiah, in this case, is saying, I saw Adonai sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And what Isaiah is seeing, I believe, is a pre-incarnate vision of the exalted Son of God. Not Uzziah, not some earthly ruler. He is seeing the enthroned majesty of Jesus Christ. Church, how often do we get so sidetracked with kings and presidents, popes and priests, that we fail to realize that the one leading us through this world is none other than Adonai, the sovereign one. The son of God who died for us and rose again and who sits upon that same throne that Isaiah is beholding high and lifted up. And that whatever this world throws at us, he is still that reigning king. Uzziah is dead, Isaiah, but behold, see the one who reigns forever. Turn over quickly to John 12, just to help prove my thinking here. John chapter 12, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 12 and verse 40 and 41. So John chapter 12, going to the New Testament, 40 and 41, just quickly, it says this. And John's quoting from Isaiah 6.10 here in this passage. So right where we're at, just a little bit further down. John 12, 40 says this, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now listen to what John says in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John's talking about Jesus. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That's how we are confident that what Isaiah is seeing is the enthronement of Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw Christ. And what do we learn from there? So we know that what Isaiah is seeing is a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ enthroned. What what else do we learn from the passage? Well, Isaiah says that the train of his robe filled the temple. This is simply Isaiah's way of attempting to describe the kingliness of Christ. In ages past, much attention was given to the dress or, or the attire of the king. The train of the king's robe said much about who the king was and the power and authority that he enjoyed. The material of the king's robe told about how extravagant or how powerful he might be. In this case, we learn from Isaiah that the robe is so long and extravagant that it literally fills the temple. Verse 2 And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Talking about the seraphim. If you look in a concordance, you will only find the word seraphim in Isaiah 6. It's the only place. Literally translated, seraphim means the fiery ones, and some have tried to relate them with the cherubim, but the Bible makes a distinction, and I think we should as well. These are unique creatures, obviously created by God to serve in his very presence. And we can learn quite a bit from the description of the seraphim. We see that they each had six wings. It says, with two, they covered their face. What do we make of that? Well, we know that no man has seen God, can't look upon God and live. God says so when Moses asks, let me see you, and God says No, Moses, no man can see me and live. And I think it's fascinating that the very beings that God creates to to serve in his presence can't even look upon him. They're forced to cover their face because they were unable to behold the majesty and glory of God. It says also that with two, they covered their feet, or literally, they covered their lower parts. This seems odd at first reading. However, feet are a sign of creatureliness, of being created. And this is a further sign of the humility with which the holy angels attend to God. What does this remind you of? Reminds you of another story? The story of Moses and the burning bush? What is the first thing that God said to Moses from the bush? Moses, take off your sandals. In other words, Moses, Bear your feet and remember who you are, for the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. The humility of the holy angel should speak volumes to us, church. As Matthew Henry states in his commentary, If angels be thus reverent in their attendance on God, with what godly fear should we approach his throne? Else we do not the will of God as the angels do it. Oftentimes, we so haphazardly walk into a worship service or engage in prayer as if we are doing God some kind of favor by even showing up and forgetting that we are approaching a reigning king. I am guilty of this. Well, it's Sunday. I, I owe it to God to go to church this morning. I'm tired. I don't really want to go, but, but I'll go. Verses 3 and 4. While we can learn much from the description of the seraphim, we must pay special attention to their proclamation. And this is really the thrust of the message. The description of the seraphim, we must pay special attention to what they are proclaiming. What activities are these most majestic of creatures engaged in? Well, the passage says that they cry out to one another in angelic praise of God, holy. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This refrain from the seraphim makes us makes up again the thrust of the message. And we could read this a hundred times over and miss the point if we're not careful. What we have here is an important truth about the very nature of who God is. When you or I are writing or expressing ourselves in written form, what means do we use to show emphasis? Tell me a couple. When you're writing a letter or you're writing and you're wanting to make a point, what are some things that you do to help the person that's reading it know that you really mean business at this point? Underlining, Underlining, punctuation, exclamation points, italics, something of that nature. It's why I cannot go to the electronic book form. I can't do it. When I'm reading, I've got to have paper and a pen, and I've got to be underlining and starring and exclamation points and all this. But we have our ways of making sure that when we're expressing ourselves, we're showing emphasis to this point. Well, the Hebrews did the same, but they had another way of stressing important points, and that was through the use of repetition. If you read through the New Testament, you will see Paul using this construction on several occasions. In the Gospels, you will oftentimes see Jesus using this when he's trying to stress a point. What does Jesus say? He'll say it, not at the end. He says it at the beginning. What does he say sometimes? I think I heard truly, truly. I think I heard that out there. Truly, truly. He'll begin a statement and he'll say truly, truly. Or some may translate it verily, verily. And what he's actually saying is amen, amen. So Jesus says his amens at the beginning of his statement amen, amen, he, he repeats it as if to say, listen carefully to what I'm getting ready to tell you. He's getting ready to drive home an important point, and I think it is significant, very significant, that the seraphim repeat the word holy three times. Why is this important? Well, church, can I submit to you this morning that no other attribute of God in Scripture is raised to this superlative or supreme level, not one. Nowhere does the Bible say that God is mercy, 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 or grace, 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 or justice, justice, justice. Are you ready for this one? Love, love, love. I think we need to take note that when God rolls back the canvas of the heavens and allows Isaiah to peek in, what Isaiah hears is that God is holy, holy, holy. Holiness is inherent within God's very being. Someone may ask, well, what does it mean to be holy? Well, just briefly, holiness in pertaining to God is complete otherness, otherness, completely pure. Free from any hint of stain, sin, or unrighteousness. That's what holiness is. The Puritan Stephen Charnock, in his treatment of the existence and attributes of God, says this regarding the holy character of God. And listen to his point. I don't know if, how many of you have read some of the Puritans, but they can write pages on a single thought. The book is like, stop a bullet, I think. But listen to the point he's getting at, because I think he makes an exceptional point when he's talking About the holiness of God and how we sometimes focus on those attributes that we want to focus on. Listen to what he says. I think it's interesting. If any, and he's talking about holiness here. If any, this attribute has an excellency above his other perfections. Talking about holiness. If any, this attribute has an excellency above his other perfections. There are some attributes of God we prefer because of our interest in them. And the relation that they bear to us, as we might esteem His goodness before His power, and His mercy whereby He pardons before His justice whereby He punishes. And there are some we more delight in because of the goodness we receive by them. So there are some that God delights to honor because of their excellency. I think it's an excellent point. When God rolls back the canvas and Isaiah peeks in to the realm of heaven, what he hears, how he hears God being described, is holy, holy, holy. In other words, and I believe it's fair to say this, that God's actions are always qualified by this attribute. Let me say that again because I messed it up. I believe it is fair to say that God's actions are always qualified by this attribute. His love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His mercy is a holy mercy, etc., etc. And beloved, we would do well to remember this truth as we seek to approach the throne of grace. Verse 4 tells us that with this message of God's holiness at the very foundation shook. Do we get the picture here? Oh, that God would help us to see him as he is. This is such a pressing issue for me, and I don't say it from some self-righteous standpoint as if I have things all figured out. But I do have this fear that too often the body of Christ has created an idol. We have created a God in our image. We have tried to turn God into some type of pathetic pal or innocuous psychologist who we may call upon from time to time for help, but dare not intrude too heavily within our lives or keep us from being well rounded and happy individuals here on this earth. Or worse yet, some, someone that we flippantly talk about on Sunday mornings as if he were our equal allowing his name to cross our lips irreverently. It is no wonder that when Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray with the model of the Lord's Prayer, the first petition or request that we see is what? What is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, thank you, hallowed be thy name. The first thing Jesus says to us when we prepare to pray is pray that my Father's name would be revered. Contrast the modern church's seemingly low concept of God with what John Calvin says when considering man's appropriate response to the holiness of God, and we're going to talk much more about this next week. Again, this is kind of old language, but listen to what he gets across. I think it's important. It says, hence that dread and amazement... With which, as Scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. We have have it listed right here in our passage in Isaiah 6. We're going to talk about it next week. What is Isaiah's first comment when he comes into contact with the holiness of God? What does he do? He pronounces a curse on himself. Woe is me, he says. Scripture uniformly relates holy men were struck and overwhelmed. Whenever they beheld the presence of God. Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance. Until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. God help us to be that. Turn over to the book of Revelation. This will be the last flip over I believe. Revelation. Revelation. Uh, chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. I want you to get a picture of this and consider this. I I made a mention the last time uh, I spoke about some things. I didn't clarify them probably as good as I should, but I have this fear that we we tend to turn Jesus into some cow-eyed, jilted lover who's begging for our attention I fear that that's the way we think of Christ. I want us to read in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. I want you to listen to this description. This is John in his Revelation and what he's seeing. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. Who do we immediately know who that is? That is Jesus From his mouth came a sharp two edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Verse 17. When I saw him, I offered a chest bump and a high five. Is that what John says? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid. That's so good. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Wow. Beloved, this is Jesus Christ. His feet as burnished bronze. His voice as the roar of many waters. And when John beholds him, he falls down as if dead. We're going to talk much more about this next week. And consider this. By grace upon grace, through the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 16, this same Jesus invites us as his people to draw near to his throne of grace with confidence, it says, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The holiness of God should not repel us but draw us if we come in the proper mindset of humility and praise. That is the point. Come to him and be humbled by a true and accurate understanding of the majesty of the Savior. You may be saying, Aaron, this message troubles me. Do you know who I am? I'm a sinner. I know exactly who you are, because I know exactly who I am. Yesterday, trying to put up some corral fence, I had a 16-foot panel on my back, and I was at this portion of the corral where it was muddy, and there was mire, and I was in my gumboots, and I was trying to carry the 16-foot panel, and my boot got stuck, and I fell face first into a mud hole, and I'll clean it up by saying a mud hole, it was in a corral, remember face first with the panel on my back and I I think at that moment I was not contemplating the holiness of God sadly enough yes I know who you are I know who I am and I also know I know very well who I am and this message should magnify the cross of Jesus Christ that is the point This message should magnify the cross. Beloved, God is holy and we are not. Isaiah's vision gives us the subject of our message today. Do you know what else Isaiah prophesied after this encounter? I want you to hear this and I want you to be comforted by it. Feel the weight and the glory of this message from the pen of Isaiah. Listen. Just bask in this. I'm not going to have you turn to it. Just listen. This is from the pen of Isaiah, the same man that we're reading about in Isaiah 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. And, beloved, when it says by his stripes we are healed, I'm not talking about of the common cold. I'm talking about the sin that curses us, that was placed upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah says. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a comfort. What an invitation. I can't give a better invitation than that to know that God is holy, 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 and I am not. And yet he has provided a way for me to attain salvation, not on my own, but through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are unworthy of such things to consider. Father, when we consider your perfections and we consider our imperfections, we think to ourselves, how can this be? And Father, it is by no way other than grace, no way. We have no hope apart from the cross, and I pray that you would help us in light of the passage that we read in the Old Testament, 700 years before the coming of Jesus, that we are given an idea of the need that each one of us has for the cross of Jesus Christ. We are absolutely 100% dependent upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Father, by which and through which, through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you no longer see us as that mud covered person laying face down but you see us with the righteous cover of your own son whom Isaiah beheld all those years ago and we read about in the New Testament and we long to see coming on the clouds of heaven the very lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world father guide and direct us help us to think rightly Help us to lean in to the message of the cross, which is our only hope. Guide and direct us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.